BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So Smart Podcast, episode 184. Oh, it's good to be back, everybody. Welcome to the You're Not So Smart Podcast. Our guest in this episode is Doctor of Behavioral Science. Gleb Sapersky. He's a disaster avoidance expert who has spent more than 20 years telling people how to de-bias themselves. He teaches, speaks, coaches, trains, talks to businesses and nonprofits, consults, all that stuff, based off of his 15 years as a behavioral economist and a cognitive neuroscientist, including seven years as a professor at Ohio State University, all of which he spent exploring Cognitive biases. So this is a return to first principles for the show, for me, for the whole thing. This is what got the whole thing started, talking about biases, fallacies, and heuristics, but with a real emphasis on cognitive biases, specifically confirmation bias, which has been sort of the root of the entire exercise. And I'm excited to talk to Gleb because he is part of the second wave of public outreach about all of this and scientific communication about this part of human reasoning, decision-making, and judgments. The first wave was all about just telling you that this stuff existed, sort of describing it, categorizing it, taxonifying it. Now there's a real urge to try to do something about it, to give you practical advice, to help you de-bias yourself. That's exactly what he wants to do. He's the author of Never Trust Your Gut, and he's here to talk about his new book, The Biases Between Us, for which I wrote the foreword. Because it's a book that's a companion piece to You Are Not So Smart in many ways, in that it tells you how to take what you learned in that book and then de-bias yourself systematically for all of the biases listed and some you've never heard of. And many of which we've talked about many times and talk regularly about on the show. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk to Gleb Sapersky about all of this, the second wave of discussing biases and what comes next. All of that, right now. My name is Gleb Sapursky. I am a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist. My expertise is in addressing cognitive biases. So if you heard about that term, I'm sure since you've listened to this show many times, it is the dangerous judgment errors that we tend to make because of how our brain is wired. 
Well, the first generation of scholars have looked at what are all of these crops, what are all these dangerous judgment errors, Daniel Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky and so on. I'm part of the second generation that's looking at how to fix them, address them, and uh, make help people make better decisions. So I've been in academia for 15 years studying these topics. I've also been doing consulting, coaching, and training, mostly for business and nonprofit leaders for about 20 years. So that's my background, and that is... I published a number of best-selling books on these topics, so my best known for the Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters with Career Press in 2019, and my new book is The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Bias and Build Better Relationships. So that one, as you can imagine, is about professional life and business relationships. This uh, business decision-making, this one, the new one, The Blind Spots Between Us, is about personal and professional relationships. Well, I'm going to talk uh, mostly about, uh, since I got to do the foreword for one of these books, that's the one I want to talk about. That Absolutely. Way, uh, <laughs> um, and thank you again for doing the foreword. I much appreciate it, David. But I reread it today and I was like, oh yeah, that's a really, that's, that's a, that was a very nice thing to say, David McCraney. And it made me feel excited about my own work because uh, <laughs> I was in that first round 10 years ago, 11 years ago, with the other, the pop science journalist of the day, writing books about just telling you, hey, have you ever heard of confirmation bias? Hey, have you ever mm. heard of this stuff? And at the time, you know, a lot of people hadn't. Um, there had been a book a few years, uh, a decade earlier called uh, How We Know What Isn't So, which, I, which mm. I'm glad I didn't know that book existed because if I had, I would never have written uh, you are not so smart, but it was, <laughs> but, but I, uh, yeah, it was, uh, for me, it was, I was like, ah, look at all these biases, look at all these fallacies and these heuristics. It's really, and it was a whole era of just categorizing it. Yeah. Uh, and also kind of, that kind of follows the trajectory of the scientific discipline, as you said, where mm -hmm. at, at first you have to create a taxonomy and then you have to start trying to understand, well, why does this happen and what can we do about it if, if it's something that you want to do something about. So your book, uh, I dig it because it goes through a lot of the biases and uh, other psychological constructs and, and uh, strange things, stumbling blocks that brains do uh, that you may have seen before in other books. But then it goes to the next level and says, okay, here's a plan for mitigating any of the bad things that could come into play if this happens in your personal life or your professional life or happens at the level of societies in general. And that is new, and I, I dig it a whole lot. So um, I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions about that kind of stuff if you're ready for them. I'm ready. And again, thank you again for your kind words. I, I dig it too. I also was really fascinated with the first you know, wave of scholarship on this topic and it helped me get into the field. But what I'm really passionate about, as you can tell, is how do we actually fix these problems? How do we make them go away to the extent that we can and uh, fix our brains, essentially? So that, that's that's what I see as my job. And that's what I hope to help folks with. So let's uh, go ahead. Let's do it. Let's do it. I love. Uh, oh, by the way, your um, your like email handle. Uh, you're like you're like uh, persona. <laughs> you're you're bona fides. You're a, the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts, and you are a disaster avoidance expert. That's a pretty good moniker. Good job with that. Oh, thank you, thank you, David. I appreciate that. You know, you're not so <laughs> smart. Is is great for pointing out the problems, and my expertise is in offering solutions to avoid the disasters that result from these problems. So that <laughs> <laughs> I dig it. It's peanut butter and chocolate. I love it. That's right. Um, 
So let me start with something you say right off the bat in um, in this book. You say, overall, it's never a good idea to go with your gut. That is something that I, I know plenty of people that will immediately feel called out by that, will immediately feel bad for hearing it, will immediately go want to question and push back on it. Um, there's a great deal of both public literature and uh, and self-help literature and things like that that really play up the idea of trusting your intuitions or building a better intuition. But you say we shouldn't go with our guts or trust our intuitions. Why do you say that? Well, there's definitely a lot of people like Tony Robbins who tell you to be primal or Malcolm Gladwell who tells you to blink and so on and other folks who just tell you to go with your gut, follow your intuitions trust yourself, you know, be primal, be savage, follow your heart, whatever your flavor of the same expression, same idea is. Unfortunately, the problem with our gut reactions, the problem with our intuitions, whatever you name them, is that they're not adapted for the modern world. That is not what they're for. The modern world has really been around since World War II, when we have really evolved into who we are right now, society as, as it is right now. And our gut intuitions, our reactions, they're adapted for the savanna environment. That's mm. what they're adapted for. When we were hunter-gatherers living in small tribes, 15 people to 150 people. So, for example, the, well, well, let's think about what was the case of, for how we related to others, the blind spots between us, right, focusing on the relationships. One of the main aspects of how we relate to others is through tribalism. Tribalism means we look for other people like us. We want other people who think like us, have the same values that we do, have the same appearance that we do. And we don't like those who are not. So people who aren't part of our tribe, we want people who are part of our tribe and those who aren't. In the Savannah environment, it made total sense. You needed to be very tribal to very much support your tribe. Because if you weren't su sufficiently tribal, you'd be kicked out of your tribe and then you'd die. Or your tribe would fall apart and then you'd die as well and everyone else would. Mm. Or... If a hostile tribe was attacking yours, you wouldn't fight them and uh, strongly and you would die. So you needed to fight the hostile tribe and you needed to support your tribe. And those tribal instincts are still incredibly powerful. And they're part of the fundamental gut intuitions that we have about other people. And we can talk about that in much more depth. But the problem, of course, in the modern world is that our world is multicultural, complex, global. We need to successfully collaborate and interact with people who look very different than we do, who have very different thought patterns, styles of approaching issues. And as a result, we have to overcome our intuitions. We have to overcome our gut reactions. That is the difference between that natural, primitive, savage self that Tony Robbins and co. really uh, promote and the civilized self, which is, what is the, does it mean to be civilized? It means that you are adapted to the modern world. That's civilization, right? It's where you go against your natural primitive impulses to actually work in a modern, complex, global society. So that one of the things about being civilized, the fundamental, critical aspects of it, why we just don't let people go out and do whatever they want, is because their gut reactions are not fit for the modern world. And similarly, our gut reactions and decision-making about our relationships and other life areas are not fit for the modern world. There are many, many other examples where we can go into and where the evolutionary background has caused us to have problematic gut reactions that harm us in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of it is, uh, I, I hear you talking about it and like, you know, sometimes your gut's a little right or sometimes you, you could, but you don't know if it is or is it just by first blush, it's because it feels like it is. And the... A lot of what you write about comes down to being having 
strengthening your metacognition, strengthening your mm-hmm. um, mindfulness, uh, if you want to use a different epistemological framework, but still talking about the same thing. Um, the the co- I, I often think of the cognitive reflection task that was used so much in the early writing about all this to demonstrate thinking fast and slow and that sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. um, and the whole point of it was to say it was to show like if you're not metacognitive, if you're not mindful of, of your if you're not watching your own reactions to something and noticing the difference between um, your first instinctual response and then maybe your second order, oh well, let me think about that response before you you know hit the hit the big red button and say this is the answer. <laughs> um, you uh, introduce a lot of potential error into your reactions to the world. Um, yes. And it's, it, that is a skill. I get, and you correct me if I'm wrong. This is a skill that has to be practiced and honed. It's not, uh, it's not a superpower. It's not <laughs> a, um, and it's not, it's not something that I can just tell you about. And now you're like, oh, okay, well, I'll do that from now on. That's right. That's absolutely right. So that's why I say you should never go with your gut. You should always check with your head whether your gut is right or not. Because sometimes it's going to be right and sometimes it's going to be wrong. But you should never simply trust your gut because it's not adapted for the modern world. And what you're talking about, this metacognition, is absolutely a skill that has that can be trained. That is what my expertise is in. How do you train this skill set? And it's not one skill set. It's a whole bunch of little skill sets. You know, it's just like saying uh, doing exercises or having a healthy diet. Think about that. Having a healthy diet is completely the opposite of what your gut reactions tell you to do. In the savanna environment, it was really important when you came across a source of sugar like honey or apples or bananas to eat as much of it as possible. That's a natural (laughs) thing. That's the appropriate thing in that environment because that's how we survived. We are the descendants of those who ate as much sugar as possible when they came across a source of sugar. Great. Now, in the modern environment, that's a terrible idea. When food companies give you, for some reason, they serve donuts in a, in a box of dozen donuts, right? That is how donuts come. Now, you should never eat a box of dozen donuts. I'm just going to tell you that right now. You should never eat a box of dozen <laughs> donuts. You know, maybe one is okay, maybe two, but you got to stop at that second donut. Don't go for that third donut. But first, when you start... Maybe maybe first week of quarantine, you can do that once. And then... <laughs> and then I still from recommend the... you to don't. You don't want to start on that... <laughs> you don't want to start on that path. That's a slippery, sugar, sticky slope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I was no, thinking no, to myself... I was thinking to myself, man, I would love to eat an entire box of donuts right now. That's mm. right. And that's what your gut reaction tells you to do. That's what. So when you start eating one donut, it's very hard to stop. It, because, of course, the companies want to feed you a box of dozen donuts. That's the way they make the most profit, right? So it's like the right size of donuts that you should eat at a serving is a dozen donuts. That's the framing of the <laughs> box of dozen donuts. And that's a cognitive bias that we can talk about. But that's kind of how they frame the right amount of donuts to eat. You should never do that. However, your gut reaction tells you to do that. It tells you that, hey, here's sugar, here's a box of dozen donuts, eat the whole thing. Well, this is why we have the obesity epidemic here in this country, because some people Mm. are still eating the dozens and donuts. Hopefully, most folks who are listening to the show have learned that for the sake of your physical fitness, you should not eat the box of dozen donuts. You should split it with five other friends and then two donuts each that that'll work fine. (laughs) You know, and uh, Mm -hmm. if you want to go even more healthy, split it with 11 other friends, save one donut each. So 
in the same way that you have learned to take care of your physical fitness by not eating a box of dozen donuts at once, you need to similarly take care of your mental fitness. And that is the meta metacognition. So the metacognition, mental fitness, this is what I'm talking about in the book. How do you become mentally fit? You become mentally fit by realizing that your gut reaction in response to other people and just decision-making in a whole bunch of areas, which we can talk about, is just like eating a box and dozen donuts. That's what your gut reaction tells you to do. And you need to address that. You need to control it because it will tell you many wrong things, many things that lead you in the, exactly the wrong direction. So that's what you need to retrain yourself. Like you retrain yourself to be physically fit, there's so many skills that you have to develop in order to have a healthy diet. So many things. I mean, how many diet health books are there uh, out there to tell you how to eat well with so many skill sets, eating mindfully and so on? There should be just as many books, even more, telling you how to think well and decide well, because decision-making is at the fundamental core of everything we do. It's really, you know, eating is only one sub-component of good decision-making, but we don't have nearly as many books out there on how to address the decision-making errors that we do as we have on addressing the eating errors that we do. And these are the same categories of errors. They come from how we are wired and how our evolutionary psychology comes from that background. So mental fitness is incredibly important to train and develop in order to make the right decisions in all life areas. And I love that. I love that. Eating decision-making and, and errors in that domain are just, just one subcategory of the whole thing. It's a good way to look at it. Uh, I like that a lot. It's almost like when you look at optical illusions and they give you an, uh, they, they show you some insights into priors and processing and, and uh, the virtual reality of that level of cognition. The, Knowing how hard it is to eat right and maintain uh, physical fitness is a good way to look at how difficult it is to just think in general because that is a thinking thing. Um, and also, uh, I, did, I dig that you bring up that all this. Uh, there's there is a whole way to look at this where you can call people irrational, you can call people that you can say that their thinking is flawed. Um, and I've seen that there's there, you know there's a new wave of pushback against that as well because of a couple for some reason because in a lot of situations that this that would be a rational approach. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of these things would be rational, uh, and they are clearly adaptive, or they wouldn't still be with us, or at yes. least they're not maladaptive to the point where we would have shed them and sloughed them off as uh, fallback behavioral tendencies. So the idea that that. Given a certain context, it's rational. Given a certain context, it's adaptive. But we live in a very complex environment now where a one-size-fits-all, biased, heuristical way of uh, approaching every single situation and problem is going to um, well, it's going to get you in trouble, and that's what you—that's what you're trying to avoid. So exactly, it's the same way that you uh, can realize that you know evolution has not really had time to change since 1945, when our modern world really came into being. Now, imagine if you had the 1945 mindset and were making decisions right now as you know your grandparents did, right? You would be making terrible decisions in the modern world. And of course, we don't have the time to evolutionarily change since that time. Yeah. So we need to understand that what we have right now Evolution it just hasn't had time to work on it. You know, it's it's way back. It's still stuck back in that uh, ancestral savanna environment. So that's why we should not trust our instincts. That's the power of culture. You know, we have culture can evolve so much more quickly than uh, than yes. biology, which is the reason we evolved 
culture it, <laughs> and to be able to produce <laughs> and receive culture so that we could outpace uh, the environment whenever the environment quickly changed around us. And in a very fascinating, to me, one of the fascinating meta, meta, meta things about this is that the epistemological env- uh, environment in which we find ourselves today requires that we quickly adapt to that. And we have to find a cultural solution because biology is still stuck before we even came up with any of these things. So um, this is having these strategies and creating uh, cultural environments where these strategies are valued mm-hmm. is a way to to outsmart our own flesh. And that's yes. uh, I think that's pretty pretty cool. It's <laughs> pretty cool. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> um, so the, you say there are four kinds of biases in the book. What are they? So we tend to be biased when we assess ourselves. We tend to be biased when we assess others. We tend to be biased when we assess risks and rewards. And we tend to be biased when we assess resource availability. So those are the four, when we think of categorizing cognitive biases, you can take a look at the list of cognitive biases in Wikipedia. You'll see a list of over 100 cognitive biases. So it gets really confusing. Well, they're all, you can approximately divide them into those four categories. For example, about ourselves. We tend to be very confident about ourselves, tend to be very optimistic about ourselves. It was important in the Savannah environment for us to be optimistic about ourselves in various ways because it was such a dangerous world that otherwise we'd never go out of our caves, right? <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that, that's something that, that's important. There are many other ways where we tend to be too mm, predisposed to think well of ourselves, which we can go into. About others, so we talked about tribalism. There's a whole area, number of areas where we are too tribal for our own good and we make bad decisions that hurt us in the end and hurt other people because of tribalism. So those sorts of dynamics, which we can talk about. Then risks and rewards. Now, there are different people out there on how they assess risks and rewards. Studies have shown that most Americans tend to be too optimistic. So optimistic, that's one of the ways of where we overestimate the rewards and underestimate the risks. And I fall into that category. I'm very honest. That's one of my biggest biases, actually, being too optimistic. So the opt- it's called the optimism bias, where I tend to be risk-blind. I tend to think that the grass is green on the other side of the hill, even though it's too often yellow. And I tend to have too high expectations of myself and others. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be a much smaller category of the population who are going to be pessimistic, who will be too risk blind, and, uh, too risk averse, who will think the grass is yellow on the other side of the hill, even though it's often green and so on. So that is an example of cognitive bias and with risks and rewards, and there are many others. And of course, resources. So we tend to greatly of underestimate the resources that we need to accomplish tasks. We tend to greatly underestimate or um, be mistaken about the kind of information that we take in. So you've probably uh, heard about the confirmation bias, where we tend to ignore information that doesn't fit our beliefs and look for information that does. And that often has to do with resources, about the kind of resources we need to accomplish tasks and the kind of uh, generally how our society is structured. So those are the four categories of cognitive biases. That Those are the four things that we get wrong that are very fundamental to our society. Mm-hmm. Well, um, let's go ahead and start getting into uh, what you're adding to this, which are strategies for dealing with it. You have uh, in the opening of the book, in the in the first chapter, we talk. You have sort of a, this bird's eye view, as you were talking about just then, the bird's eye view of all the biases. 
and you have a bird's eye view of here are things that tend to work on all of them. And then as we go forward through the book, you get very specific and say, now, also, in addition to that, here's how to deal with this very specific thing. So mm-hmm. starting with the more bird's eye view, I'm just going to go through them and take as long as you like to talk about each one of them. Uh, you're talking about de-biasing the brain. And I mm-hmm. dig that. It makes me think of like defragging. Um, <laughs> and uh, so de-biasing, decluttering, cleaning out the brain, taking good care. The You list in order. I'm going to just go in order. One of the first things you can do is delay. What's yes. that about? So just... To clarify, if anyone who is listening to this podcast wants to look at the literature on this topic, that's what you should go. You can go to uh, Google Scholar, put in debiasing cognitive biases, and you'll see the research on these topics pop up. So that's a technical terminology. You know, not just kind of using the terminology that's popular out there. It is the technical terminology that scholars like myself use it to talk about fighting cognitive biases. So if you want to look at the literature, that's what you do. Now, mm-hmm. delay. Your mom probably told you that you know sometime you know before you react count to ten. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is actually has been shown to work. You know some of those things that your mom tells you are actually quite useful, and this is one of those things. Counting to ten. Why is that? Well, you probably if you've been listening to this uh, show quite a lot, you've probably heard about the autopilot system and the intentional system. So the autopilot system is our intuitive system. It's the gut reaction system. It's the older system. It's the emotional system. It's the blink system, the primal savage system of our thinking. We have two thinking systems, and that's the one that is really very basic. It's also called system one. I prefer the autopilot system. It's much more (laughs) a clear way of describing it. Then there's another system called system two, the intentional system. So again, they prefer much prefer that intentional system terminology. That's logical reasoning, abstract. Takes much more time to turn on. You know, may, takes maybe about a second to turn on, whereas the other system takes about a, a few milliseconds. So, and it's much harder to use. It's much more effortful. So, by counting to ten, by delaying your decision making in any way, there are plenty of ways of delaying your decision making. You're giving yourself time to turn on that intentional system by not responding. You know, when somebody says something nasty to you, you can either just react how you would intuitively. Or you can pause, delay, and make a decision about how to respond intentionally. And that is the intentional response, the mindful response. That's a much more effective response, and you will be probably much better off in accomplishing your goals in that social setting than if you just respond to whatever the person says. So that's the the counting to 10 works for for, for not not too aggressive arousal, but if you have very strong arousal, if you have a very strong response, it takes about 20 to 30 minutes to address the response. So this is something that you want to think about in terms of the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system, that's the nervous system that is activated in the fight, freeze, or flight response. It takes about 20 to 30 minutes to cool down by turning on, and it cools down by turning on the parasympathetic nervous system, which is called the rest and digest system. So when you send signals to yourself that, hey, it's okay, I'm going to take turn down. So if you're having a fight with your romantic partner and you get really heated up or your romantic partner gets really heated up, you don't want to immediately continue. You don't want to simply count to 10. That's when you want to say, let's take a break for a half hour and you go and you do something distracting and fun and engaging that takes you out of your fight mode. And that will give you time to cool down and come back with a fresh head. Hmm. Okay. Um, I understand that, and I'll try my best. Uh, <laughs> what about uh, 
this is this. I think I love I love terms like this. Probabilistic thinking. Yes. So this is a really important one. This is going to be very valuable for you. Whoever actually starts using this, this is a really incredibly helpful technique. What it does is address the world in numbers. Now, our autopilot system doesn't do well with numbers. It's much more of a binary system, black or white, yes or no, threat or opportunity. The probabilistic system is also called Bayesian reasoning. You might have heard this after the Bayesian theorem by Reverend Thomas Bayes. That Mm. involves evaluating the probability of what reality looks like and then changing your mind based on new information as new information becomes available. Now, to have probabilistic thinking, you need to develop a a perspective of humility and value the utility of humility. You need to understand that your view of the world is always mistaken, always broken, always in flawed in some way. So that's just a fundamental reality. You're not, you don't have perfect information about the world. And probabilistic thinking helps you have more accurate understanding of where your evaluation of the world is good or not. So you want to place probabilities on reality. You want to think about estimates estimates of the world based on uncertainty in terms of probability. How accurate do you think you are in modeling, let's say, well, let's talk about professional relationships. So your coworkers. Your coworkers are right now you know, working and everyone's working at home due to COVID-19. So maybe you have, so let's say that everyone's working at home due to COVID-19 and you want to estimate, hey, how likely are your coworkers to respond to an email you send? That's mm-hmm. a very fundamental thing that you want to know. How likely are they to do you a favor? It's very important for you to be able to estimate these sorts of things in order to function effectively within the workplace. Many people greatly overestimate the extent to which their coworkers are likely to help them, and then they make mistakes about it, and then they get into conflicts that turns into issues. So in order to address this situation, what you can do is you can make an estimate before sending an email to a coworker of how likely are they to respond positively to your request. And responding positively, you can say that responding positively means that within uh, you know 12 hours, they respond saying, yes, I will do this. And then they will actually follow through and do this within, let's say, the next 24 hours. If it's a, so let's say you think that's an 80% chance that they will respond to your request. And then there is a 90% chance that they'll follow through. So what you want to do is experiment then. <laughs> experiment and see to what extent you're evaluation of reality is actually accurate. See, when you send the email, how many times out of the times that they send the email, do they actually respond within 12 hours? And then how often do they follow through? You'll probably see that, you know, it's not going to be 80% of the time. It might be something like, you know, 40% of the time. Mm-hmm. And that will help you understand that your model of your coworkers, the way that you think about your coworkers is mistaken. And you need to change your model of your coworkers. And then they'll follow through maybe, you know, 60% of the time. So then you, that will help you realize that, hey, my evaluation of reality about the, my coworkers is was too optimistic, large majority of people's is, and then you can change your way of thinking about your coworkers using this probabilistic thinking approach. So this is a critical tool for you to approach life in a very different way. And that's just one example out of you know millions of examples, millions of decisions, everyday decisions that you make about the world around you, about your relationships. You know what will let's say. Uh, this is a good one. What will your uh, romantic partner 
say about your proposal to do a surprise outing somewhere, let's say. So do, will uh, they say yes? Will they say no? Will they be excited or not? You can estimate that. You can estimate these things and, and then, of course, propose it and see what the response is. You might be surprised that they're not going to be as excited as you think they are. Hmm. There's going to be many other things where you can change your view of reality based on these estimates. And the crucial thing is that you should not be upset. This is really important. You should not be upset when your coworker doesn't do what they want you to do or when your romantic partner doesn't isn't as excited as you thought they would be because the problem is not on their end the problem is on your end <laughs> you were too optimistic you had a view of reality that was mistaken that was problematic your mental model of reality was broken and that is an example of where you have to understand that your evaluation of reality that's your gut reaction about what reality is like is often bad. It's influenced by these cognitive biases. So probabilistic thinking helps you realize where your evaluation model of reality is broken and address these problems. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of uh, just Bayesian uh, stuff in general. Just updating your um, just updating your priors when you get new information, and then treating everything as a probability right off the bat instead of black and white. So those yes. is uh, what is the percentage likelihood that this is true? Even what is the percentage likelihood? that my attitude toward this thing is accurate. Um, and then when you receive any evidence whatsoever, did that push my confidence up or down because did it make the likelihood go up or down? That one tiny thing is, it's not tiny, it's the biggest thing ever, but that one thing is, for me, it's like that's the giant the key that unlocks the whole shebang. So mm-hmm. um, that's critical thinking, like yes. that's the foundation of all critical thinking. Uh, and... Uh, so the just just adding that one thing can really be take you a long way toward debiasing. Um, let's run through a couple more of these. What about um, predicting the future, considering alternatives, uh, considering past experiences, and then reflecting on the future? That's all kind of feels like it's all kind of in one place. What about all that? So yeah, so making predictions about the future is part of the. That's part of probabilistic thinking. So probabilistic thinking, you want as part of probabilistic thinking, thinking about reality, make predictions about the future in order to help make experiments, to experiment to see to what extent your evaluation Mm, of reality is similar or not to what you anticipate it to be. So that's kind of... uh, evolving from that aspect of how you do the biasing. Considering alternative explanations is going into the next phase where you where you there's extensive research showing that in order to address our mistaken assessments of others of ourselves of risks and rewards of resources so all of those categories it's super helpful to consider alternative explanations for what we observe around us because we are very tempted our gut reactions are very tempted to orient toward what we already believe, orient toward positive opinion buttons about ourselves and those groups to which we belong, and negative opinions toward groups to which we don't belong, and other people in general who we may like less than they deserve. So what you want to do when you look at a situation, and when you look at a situation, you intuitively have a narrative in your head going about, hey, here's what happened in this situation. 
And this narrativizing is one of the biggest problems that we have in thinking about the world, because we like to understand the world in relatively simplistic story-like terms. In reality, the world is much more complex. You know, the heroes are actually much more flawed than we give them credit for, and the villains are actually, you know, much better than we tend to think they are. And we tend to we tend to perceive ourselves as the hero in our own story. Well, guess what? Everyone perceives themselves as the hero in their own story, pretty much everyone. Mm-hmm. So you want to always think about alternative explanations for what you're observing. You know, hey, what if the story in my head is the wrong story? You know, I think I'm the hero in, in this story, but the other person thinks they're the hero in this story. And how can their they can be the hero in their own story. And how may I be the villain in this story? This is one of those really interesting things where we make a lot of mistakes in thinking about who is the story. So for example, uh, there's, you know, I talk in the book that there's an example where say your boss is rude with you, or you perceive your boss as being rude with you at work. Now, some might immediately take this curtness as being a sign that the boss is upset with them and uh, I mean, I know these people who would start thinking about their past performance. I mean, I coach some of these people as my as an executive coach and think about, hey, what's going on? What did they do wrong? And get into a cycle, this doom loop of rumination and thinking negative things. And these are the pessimists and there are a number of those. Now, your boss being hurt with you at work might have nothing to do with you. <laughs> we, too often, things happen in the outside world and we think they're about us but they're really much less often about us than we think they are it's much more likely that your boss is curt with you because of stuff going on with her that you're not realizing is going on with her mm-hmm. you know she might have had a bad burrito or you know COVID-19 might be stuck <laughs> at home and her kids might be all over her mm-hmm. you know this is like one of those things that we don't think about we just think about how this person acts toward us So you might want to take some time, calm down, not worry about it too much, and check with your boss at a later time point about, hey, you know, it seemed like you were being a little short, did I do something that, you know, was concerning for you, and so on, and they'll likely tell you, no, sorry about that, you know, I was just really distracted, or this thing was going on. This is one of those really important things that's just a small example out of many examples where we need to consider alternative explanations for the situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to stop here and see if you have questions before talking about considering our past experiences. No, keep going. So considering our past experiences, this is really one of those uh, big things that we don't tend to do nearly enough. <laughs> How many people have conflicts with their significant others and they have the conflicts about the same thing every time you know who left the socks on the floor you know who uh, did did some whatever didn't cook dinner something like that same conflicts all the time about the same issues you know who interrupted who and uh, who didn't who forgot whose birthday right all of these sorts of things come because we just go with our intuitions and our relationships and of course professional relationships happen the same way you know who forgot to give you the report in a timely manner even though they promised right many times all of these sorts of things come from us just following our gut intuitions not relationships we just do what feels natural and we don't think about our past experiences and considering our past experiences helps us really see that we when we follow our gut intuitions we make so many mistakes now if you have a coworker 
who consistently doesn't give you the report on time, what's the likelihood that in the future they will give you the report on time? It's very low. If your significant other doesn't uh, you know, pick up their socks, even though they promise to pick up their socks continually and constantly, what's the likelihood that their new promise to pick up their socks or to stop interrupting you will actually be fulfilled? Very unlikely. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of uh, habit change effort to change a habit it takes you know several months of intense focused effort to actually develop a new habit or to change an existing one so you should not you know, imagine that somebody will just snap their fingers and change their behaviors just because they would like it or because you would like it so you want to always consider your past experiences with people and inform your interactions with other people based on your past experiences with these people same thing goes for your own behaviors now if you tend to arrive late to places just wanting to arrive on time to a place will not result in your arriving to a time to this place and time. You have to really change your behavior and change your habits for that to happen. So that is a fundamental aspect of what you want to do. Then, then a related one is, you know, so we talked about the past and you want to reflect on the future and then repeating scenarios. If you want to make much better decisions, you want to address our tendency to be very short-term oriented. In the Savannah environment, it made a lot of sense to be short-term oriented because, you know, when you kill the mammoth, you couldn't freeze the meat, right? You then mm -hmm. would go to waste and you couldn't invest in yourself as kind of professional development. Were you going to become a better axe chipper or something? This is not going to be <laughs> helpful for you. <laughs> in the Savannah environment, it was very important for you to be very short-term oriented. The kind of rewards and threats we, we faced were intense and in the moment, and we couldn't really gather up resources for the future effectively. So in the modern environment, we can very much change that. We can be much more confident about our future relationships with others, that these people won't be around and, you know, Uncle Bob won't be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> they will be around for a long time. And that you can invest your resources in banks and in your house and you can invest in your professional development and through taking courses and so on, you know, listening to useful podcasts. And that is something that is very hard for us to realize because we tend to fall into what's called hyperbolic discounting and be very short-term oriented. So reflecting on the future and seeing your future self, the kind of future goals you want to have, and the kind of reality that's caused by repeating scenarios. So you have a series of interactions with Uncle Bob. What kind of interactions do you want to keep having with Uncle Bob? And you know, to try to get him, is it really important for you to try to get Uncle Bob to stop leaving his socks on the floor, where it will be incredibly hard Pardon me and take you six months with Uncle Bob's full cooperation to do that. Or maybe you can just, you know, have a workaround and figure out how to have less conflicts and fights with Uncle Bob about this. So that is looking at your past experiences, looking at the future and repeating scenarios, and considering alternative explanations and options is really important in order to make better decisions and debias yourself. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And 
this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. 
When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our interview with Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Well, I want to get into some of these uh, specifically uh, because some of these have great names, and I haven't talked about them on, on the show before. And uh, so I'm going to pick. Around, I'm going to skip around in here and pick a few of these, and just ask you what it is, and mm-hmm. then um, and then how do, how do we deal with it? So let's let's start with. Uh, I like this one a lot. What is the horns effect. The horns effect refers to the tri- so in the tribal environment. Let's go back to the tribal environment. In the tribal environment, it was really important for us to dislike people who don't look like us, who don't have our values, who don't have our thought patterns, who aren't part of our tribes. And in the modern environment, of course, that's much that's bad for us, where we it hinders our ability to work with people who look different, who feel different, and so on. So the horns effect refers to when we dislike a certain characteristic of someone, when we see a characteristic of someone that doesn't feel like it's part of our tribe, where this person doesn't look like they're part of our tribe, then we will dislike this person as a whole. So, for example, you probably can hear that I have an accent, and this accent is, you oh, know, I had, means I... have noticed. Uh, yeah, there you go. You haven't noticed. <laughs> Thank you, dude. Uh, <laughs> you know, I ain't from around here, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I came from a small country in Eastern Europe called Moldova when it was freed from Russian domination in 1991. So I'm very glad to to be liberated. My parents decided to leave and I'm very glad they left, actually, because in 1996, there was a world value survey which uh, found that Moldova was the least happy country in the world. So least happy country in the world. You know, I was very glad that when they left, when they when uh, I heard about that. But anyway, accent is an interesting phenomenon where when Americans hear an accent that's different from the mainstream American accent, they tend to take this person less seriously. They are more suspicious of this person. They feel that this person is less credible. There's only one foreign accent to which this doesn't apply. Do you want to guess what, David? Well, I'm assuming the uh, British accent. You're right. They still yeah, have yeah. a cultural imperialism going for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's the uh, one accent to which uh, to which this doesn't apply. So this is an example of the horns effect, where you make bad decisions, wrong decisions about people who have an accent. Just because they have an accent doesn't mean that they're less trustworthy, but that's what it feels like mm. because you know they're they're weird and strange and so on. They're not part of our tribe. That's what our gut tells us. Interestingly, uh, there's a lot of other phenomenon going on here. So, of course, all sorts of discrimination have to do with acts, with uh, the horns effect, racism, sexism, you know, ableism, all of these things have to do with the horns effect. This is an example of the horns effect in action, where just because someone looks, has a different skin color, we treat them as worse than they actually are. 
then this applies to other phenomena. So if there's an interesting study showing that people, men specifically, who are shorter don't get as far ahead in their careers as men who are taller just because of height, because height is associated with positivity for us, with so, with social status. And the people who are not tall are seen as lower social status, and therefore there's they have the horns effect going on against them. Same thing for people who are obese. So they have the horns effect going on against them, and they less rise less highly in their careers. Women, there's that's a major reason for the glass ceiling. So if you look at just gender terms, if you look at uh, people with the same category with the same skills and experience who have a male name and a female name when you have studies of these resumes being sent to recruiters males tend to get callbacks at a much higher rate than women and the only thing that you change is male name or female name so that's an example of where gut reactions cause people to make quite bad decisions in a whole variety of areas now how you can deal with the horns effect. So this is an interesting one. I'll give you an example. Since we're talking about recruiting, I'll give you one from a recruiting perspective. Mm-hmm. There's what you want to do when you deal with the horns effect is to make sure that you deal with the opposite as well, the halo effect. So the halo effect is kind of like it sounds, you know, you have the horns, you have the halos. When you have someone who looks like you, who has your values, you tend to value them more than they do, than they deserve to be valued. So for example, here I'm in, Columbus, Ohio, and we have the the Ohio State Buckeyes as the, this is the, the team that you know pretty much everyone in Central Ohio roots for. And our big enemies are the Michigan Wolverines. So I was giving a talk to about a hundred HR personnel here in at a diversity inclusion conference. So experts in diversity inclusion, DNI heads in various organizations around here. And I asked them, you know, hey, uh, about 100 people, how many of you would hire a Michigan fan, University of Michigan fan? And only three of them raised their hands. Only three of them would hire a University of Michigan fan. And these mm. are diversity inclusion experts here. So <laughs> this is, and of course, they'd be much more likely to hire a Buckeyes fan rather than, you know, average Joe, somebody who's not a fan of either team. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do is identify where the horns affect hurts you. That's always the first aim that you want to identify with debiasing because you need to get emotional investment into it. You're addressing your emotions. You're fighting your emotions. And in order to fight your emotions to un- those gut reactions, you want to see where they cause you pain so you can use your emotions to fight those emotions. You need to have emotional investment in addressing this. So you want to identify all the areas where they hurt you. So for example, in employment, I was working with a company, a retail company in uh, the New York City area that had a number of clothing stores. And the company was trying to get more people who were multicultural, multiracial onto the team and was having trouble doing so. So we examined the hiring practice and we saw that there were two issues. The halo effect was going on and the horns effect were both going on. So the halo effect was going on where the mostly white recruiters were recruiting people who looked like them just because they were giving them higher points, higher valuations in the recruiting interviews. So that was a problem. And also the horns effect was going on. So separately from the first People who did not look like them, who specifically had opposite values, opposite thought patterns, and so on, were getting bumped out of uh, this uh, of the recruiting process. So what you want to do is you want to 
give people negative points for being similar to the recruiter and give people positive points for being different from the recruiter. Mm-hmm. And those are all, uh, you know, th- those are, can all be figured out. So we figured out the right approach and then we addressed this situation. So the recruitment was much more aligned with what the company wanted to see happen. You can do the same thing in your relationships, in your personal decision-making. If you see someone who looks different than you, you want, and you're talking to them and you're evaluating them in any sort of way, which we always naturally do when we talk to someone, when we try to establish a relationship, you want to give them more positive points for areas of difference. You know, if they happen to be, if you're a Buckeyes fan, they happen, you know, or if you're, let's say, UNC Chapel Hills fan and they're a Duke fan, you want to give them more positive points than you would. If they are different than you in whatever categories they're different than you, give them more positive points. If they're different politically than you, give more positive points in order to compensate for the intuitive horns effect that in, that just naturally affects all of us. Wow, I love all that. Um, and there's just, uh, I love that, you know, for anyone who's, like hearing us go through all this, like in the book, you just you do this with every one of these. You, you you take each one and you break it apart, and you say this is what it is, and here's what you can do about it. Um, the the portion earlier where we went through sort of the umbrella ways of dealing with everything is just in the first chapter, so uh, you get a lot mm-hmm. of bang for your buck. Um, let me ask another one here. Uh, we've talked about this a lot on the show, but not uh, we've talked a lot about the fundamental attribution error. Just. It, never really specifically, but we'll mention it as we move through other topics. We never really talk about the group attribution error or the ultimate attribution error. So if you could take those as a group, tell us what they are, and then how do we deal with each one of those? Sure, happy to. So the group attribution error. Now, we tend to, so the fundamental attribution error is where we tend to attribute to other people the characteristics the personality associated with the situation. So if we see them in a being in a negative situation, we tend to see them, we tend to associate the negative situation to their personality as opposed to the external, as opposed to caused by external circumstances. So when we are on the opposite, when we do something that we see as negative in some way, we attribute it to the circumstances. You know, hey, we broke the rules, but we had a justification for doing so, right? Whereas those other people broke the rules, well, they're bad people. Mm-hmm. They're, they're doing the wrong thing. So that is just the nat- na- the nature of the attribution error. So that's something that you have to realize. Now, the group attribution error has to do the same thing with groups. So we make snap judgments where we must attribute the reasons for our behaviors and for a group's behaviors to our evaluation of broad groups. So that's the group attribution error, and it comes in two flavors. When we perceive the characteristics of an individual member of a group to reflect the group of a whole. So let's say we see uh, someone who, uh, let's, we talked about women before. So let's say we see someone who's a woman doing something that we don't like. And then we tend to associate, uh, let's say, professionally. Let's say we have hired a woman employee and she tends to be very late at work. And then we tend to associate that with women being late at work just as a category. We think, oh, women tend to come late to work or, you know, something like that. When Or uh, men, who, men, let's say, in romantic relationships. When... There, when someone tends to date a woman and the woman has a tendency to want the guy to guess what she's thinking, right? So that's a common complaint with guys that women want to guess uh, what she's what they're thinking. 
then we tend to think that hey, this is all all women have that tendency. That's or that you know guys tend to be the the, the strong silent macho types. So we, then we associate that category with all women, even though we might have only dated a few women who had that category, that that uh, way of thinking. So that's kind of one tendency that goes wrong. Or when we perceive the group's overall preferences to determine the preferences of an individual within the group. So let's say that we perceive. Uh, all people who are bankers to be very passionate about money, you know, the, to be very into money. That that's the thing that we uh, think that that that's what bankers are. And then we, whenever we see an individual banker, we think, aha, that uh, woman is all about money. You know, she went into banking. She's all about money. Very consumerist. That's what it's about. So when we that that's the tendency that we have. Well, you know, I have actually a good friend who's a banker who is in in that field not at all because it's about money it's a way of course for him to make a living but he's really passionate about dungeons and dragons of all things that's how he spends the vast majority of his time outside of work and he's trying to do his best to spin out a hobby of, of doing dungeons and dragons you know role playing games into having into a business as opposed to banking. So that's kind of one area where obviously this banker is not uh, doing banking because he's into money. And there's another category of people. So this is an interesting one. There is a movement called effective altruism where where people focus on being as altruistic as possible in order to save as many lives as possible. Mm. And the movement of effective altruism, one of the things that they tell people to do is if you want to be an effective altruist, one of the things you can do is go into banking because it's a high-earning profession, and then you can give all of your money that you above a certain amount to effective altruist causes to make as much good for the world as possible. So there are a number of people who live on something like you know thirty thousand dollars per year in New York City, you know, sharing a room with four others, who are bankers and earn something like one hundred twenty thousand or you know mm. three hundred thousand and who give the large majority of their money in order to advance effective altruist causes. So there's plenty of bankers who are not into money, but those are the kind of associations we have with bankers. So what you want to do with that category, with these sorts of issues, is from, you know, I, I, I tell a story actually in the group, uh, I, I want to make sure to tell a story. I fall for this too. So I'm not perfect. I fall for these errors too. I had a situation where so I suffer from occasional back pain. So does my wife. Now I had some negative experience with chiropractors in the past who cracked my back. But then a friend of mine said that her dad is a really great chiropractor and you know i tend to have a very negative association with chiropractors but she said her dad is a great chiropractor i'm like okay like what do i have to lose i guess you know this friend is telling me something i have a lot of trust for this friend so i went to this chiropractor and the his practice was completely not cracking your back he was just focusing really on muscle manipulation in a way that was quite helpful and he had quite a lot of research behind various forms of muscle manipulation and that was really helpful for me so that helped me understand that hey my approach toward chiropractors was based on a couple of bad examples and you know insensitivity to sample size is a big problem in making good decisions so that's again that's another example of group attribution error which you can fall into which I fell into. So what you want to do to address the group attribution error is to make sure to look for counterexamples. So we talked about considering alternative explanations and options. Look for alternative explanations. Look for people who 
who are not representative of the broader trend. So I gave an example of the chiropractor. I gave you an example of bankers who are effective altruists and, you know, as a banker who's uh, a D&D uh, fan, think about women who are maybe not uh, late to work or something like that. Think about alternative explanations and options. And here is a critical, that's a critical area of addressing this group attribution error. So that is something that you really want to be thinking about in order to make better, in order to make better decisions. Now, another thing that you can do here is something that we haven't mentioned. It's a crucial technique for a lot of these problems. It's called getting an external perspective. So what you want to do is you want to get other people to give you feedback on the situation, on your assessment of the situation. The friend who gave me the external perspective on chiropractors is one example of addressing the group attribution error because I listened to them and that helped me address this problem as a whole. For ask other people, ask other people about their opinion of whether bankers, women, whatever categories of people that you're thinking about, you want to think about how you can use other people's experience, perhaps people who are within that group of addressing your intuitive assessments of this group. So briefly, the ultimate attribution error. So we we talked about the fundamental attribution error. The ultimate attribution error causes us to misattribute problematic group behaviors to the internal characteristics of groups as opposed to external circumstances and vice versa for groups that we don't like. So for example, if you see you know, in our society, one of the biggest problems here is systematic racism, and that causes my various minorities, black people and so on, or Hispanics, to be on a lower social class than white people or Asians. So as a result of this systematic racism, there's an intuitive association of people who are have black people, Hispanic people, as being less capable of economic success than white people. When we don't look at the external factors that the people who have this association, who have this way of thinking about black people or Hispanic people, don't look at the external factors, the systematic factors, the systematic racism that caused Hispanics and blacks to be systematically deprived of opportunities to succeed in our society. And that is a big problem because those people attribute their lack of economic success to the internal characteristics of people who are black or Hispanic rather than to systemic characteristics of how our society's structural racism deprives these people of opportunities. So that's an example of where that, that's a big problem. And of course, you can address it by addressing the systemic underlying factors that cause this deprivation of opportunities. So that's the ultimate attribution error. Wow, that's great. I had never, uh, I don't think I'd ever, we ever mentioned the ultimate attribution, and it's just one of those things that's like right in your face. Um, mm. One more thing, because I, it's hard to believe we've already burned up an hour here, but uh, one more thing. I, I love just this phrase, I just love this term, and uh, if you can give it the same treatment as everything else, and I really appreciate you going through everything like that. The curse of knowledge. <laughs> the curse of knowledge. Well, it can be hard to give the curse of knowledge the same treatment because, you know, I know it very well. <laughs> the, the curse. Yes, the curse knowledge. of knowledge. <laughs> so the curse itself, the curse of knowledge, when 
it's very hard, very difficult to remember how hard it is to learn a topic, to learn an idea, to learn a skill set that we already know. And this is something for uh, David and myself as experts. This makes it really hard for us to explain these complex concepts in a way that people who are not as aware of these complex concepts as us can really appreciate and get. So we, because we don't remember how hard it was for us to learn about them. Now, I, you know, I just mentioned a short time ago that it may take about six months to change a habit. So it, it really does. It takes a very long time to change a habit and to get somebody to stop leaving their socks on the floor or to get somebody to stop interrupting or, you know, leave the toilet seat down, right? Mm. These are things that are surprisingly hard to do. They are not easy. And there's a lot of ways that we need to really not, we need to emo invest our emotions into it. It can't be just about the brain. You know, David said at the beginning of the show that just by learning about these topics, you're not going to magically snap your fingers and fix them. <laughs> That's not how it works. What you need to do is seriously invest a lot of effort into very much changing your emotions first, because about 80 to 90% of what we do is determined by our emotions when we just let them go forward with our natural state. So we can't simply just say, you know, we will function on the intentional system our whole lives. That's that's terrible. You need What you need to do is instead retrain your emotions. And all of this stuff that I'm talking about here is about retraining your emotions to make better decisions in the moment. So you need to retrain your emotions to invest into changing your habits. And that's a very hard thing to do. That's not an easy thing to do to internalize all of these things, like how difficult is it to count to 10 before responding? It's a very difficult thing when you start doing it. Of course, once you start, once you go forward and integrate into it, it becomes much easier. So this curse of knowledge has to do with not realizing how difficult it is to learn a new habit, to learn a new technique, to learn a new thing. You know, I remember when there was a, I shared a story in the book about a friend who uh, tried to teach me how to play the drums, which is one of those things that, you know, he said, don't worry, it's easy. So then he told me, he took me to his drum set and uh, he told me to, you know, sit down, you know, hit the rack tom and then the bass drum, brass drum. I, I had no idea what they were, so I asked him to explain it to me. And he looked confused that I didn't know what they were. And so then he, okay, he spent some time explaining it to me, showing them how to hit them, how to keep up the rhythm. Uh, so he sat down, he showed it to me, and then he said, here, here, you do this. And I tried to do it, and I couldn't. I was getting confused. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't have the best hand-eye coordination, just to be honest. <laughs> you know, or hand-foot-eye when terms of the drums. So I tried to do it, and I just, you know, I was failing, and I was increasingly frustrated. And he was, you know, getting confused, and he was frustrated. And so it was really difficult to uh, have that interaction, especially with a friend with whom I'm otherwise, you know, pretty get along pretty well. And this was an example, you know, later I realized that the friend, you know, just fell into the curse of knowledge and that I really should have given him more guidance on how to teach me. I just assumed that he knew what he was doing. So that was a little bit earlier when I didn't know as much as I know about cognitive biases right now. And that's a small example out of many examples where you will tend to, when you try to teach others, you will tend to greatly underestimate the kind of difficulty others will have in learning whatever you want them to learn. And others who are trying to learn a topic will also underestimate how difficult it is to learn what they what they, they want to learn. So this is one of the harder things to, you know, for us to deal with in relationships to others, because a lot of our relationships, when we've 
is about teaching others to do something different, to do, to have a new knowledge, to have a new skill set. And it's surprisingly hard to do. So we need to be much more patient when we address these, when we address people, need to be much more humble about our ability to teach them and much more humble about their ability to learn and think about what's called the inference gap. The inference gap is the gap between what you know and what you're trying to teach them. And so if the inference gap is large, when there's a lot of content, topics, skill sets, whatever information between what you're trying to teach them and what you and what they want to learn and where they are right now, you should not teach them at master level. So you shouldn't teach them the 501 when they're at 101. You should teach them at you know one at 201 when they're at 101. And it's very hard for people who are at 501 to teach at the 201 level because you need to teach them much more and much more patiently than you think that you should. So this is the curse of knowledge where we tend to really go be much much further, much where we tend to go much faster than other people need us to go. So you want to instead consider other people's points of view, put themselves in your, put yourself in their shoes, try to remember how difficult it was. And that's considering other people's point of view is a very important skill. We talked about that. And you want to put, remember how difficult it was to learn that and see what would have helped you. Also talk to them about, get their perspective see what helps them learn because different people learn in different ways. Some just want to be given the drum, the drum set and just, you know, kind of fail at it until they can flail at it and fail at it until they can learn. Other people want to be given the instructions and you should not assume that what works for you is what works for other people. So you need to ask them what works for them in order to teach them effectively. That's perfect. I love it. I love it. And it's a thing, you know, you know, we're talking about your book and, uh, and I have this experience. I've been working on a book for a long time now. Were you, if you spend too much time with a topic, in the very beginning of writing a book, when you're still fresh from learning new things, it can be very easy to communicate those things to the reader because you still have the same feeling inside you that you did, uh, that, that mm-hmm. you think they will have because you're trying to, to to explain it to them the way that it made sense to you. And strangely, when you when you when you've been with a project for a long time, you can get to the point where you're where you're not condescending anymore to anybody. You just kind of assume they know what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very nice to be on the receiving end of that where you have to ask, excuse me, could you explain that? And then the person explains. They don't immediately assume that you don't understand. And it's very weird to be stuck in a limbo state between those two extremes when you're working on a project for too long because <laughs> you're like, okay, I need to explain this. But do I need how foundational do I need to go? Do I need to explain to people how shoes work before I can, <laughs> you know, or do I? Can I start at the level of like, uh, you know, can I explain to them? Can I just assume they they understand the history of the uh, the the formation of the uh, of the Greater Antilles? And I can just start right there. <laughs> like, like you you you're like, where do I start? And that, yep. that's the. Yep. Luckily, editors can help you with that. They can say, like, you may need to, like, explain this a little bit, or you may need to respect your reader a little better. So I, I dig that curse of knowledge for that reason, because um, some of the best communicators, especially the best science communicators in the world, have been people who could really tell where to begin the explanation. I think mm-hmm. of people like, like uh, Richard Feynman was so great at yeah. explaining um, fantastical Nobel Prize-winning concepts in a way that did not feel condescending, but at the same time uh, felt like he was blowing my mind with everything mm. he had to say, right? Um, yes. And I've noticed that I will have a reaction, even with modern science communicators, who don't quite 
do that. They they, mm-hmm. they they try to inspire awe with ideas that I feel like, yeah, I get it. I knew that. You know, so like <laughs> it's a real skill set. It's a total skill set. Um I would talk about this forever. I can't, but uh this is a great book. If you're a fan of You Are Not So Smart stuff, if you're a fan of this world, and you probably are because you're listening to this show, and you were like, I really dig these books that tell me how weird my brain is, but they never tell me what to do about it. This is a book you can use. It remind people what the name of the book is and then how to find you and what your projects are and where you are on the internet and all the rest. Sure, happy to. So, book is called The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Bias and Build Better Relationships, published by a great publisher called New Harbinger. So, it's available in bookstores near you, if they're still open. <laughs> well, But if they're closed, you can go online to Amazon, Barnes Noble, and so on. So, it's available, traditional publishers, so it's available in uh, the hard copy, uh, digital copy, and so on. You'll recognize David McCraney's name by it as having the foreword. So thanks yeah. again, David. <laughs> <laughs> I, get, My, uh, I get nothing for this except uh, praise and adulation. I want to tell that to readers. So, uh, so, but I am very happy for you to uh, – I want you to get this book because it's a pretty good foreword. Well, thank you. And, uh, <laughs> you, did, you did a great job. No, seriously. Thanks, but thanks. Uh, anyway, my resources, uh, videos, blogs, podcasts, decision aids, guides, manuals, virtual coaching, consulting in person once that becomes available are at disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. And there's an assessment on these cognitive biases. If you want to get that, a free assessment on disasteravoidance.com disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Free assessment on cognitive biases that you may experience. Finally, I'm really active on LinkedIn, so that's my best social media. If you have any questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, just connect with me there. Happy to chat. Dr. Gleb Tsipursky on LinkedIn, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. Great. And I'll uh, have all those links available in the show notes. Um, and I'll, uh, social tweet, do all the good things for it. So, um, I really appreciate it. I thank you very much. And, um, I look forward to seeing how this turns out and I'll talk to you more in the future with other things. I'm hoping to do, um, a sort of a series sometime later in the year where I'm just going to start going through all the biases one by one. I've never done that. And I think it would be fun. Um, I think I'm gonna do them in a little five, five, bias chunks and so i'll i'll see if you, you can come in on that and we can work on that together that'd be fun um that'd be great. and i don't know i don't know what to say to people anymore because it feels like i need to like it feels like we live in a jane austen novel like where i have yes, to like, like living, i don't know if i don't know if i interesting, live in yeah, interesting times right yeah i don't know if it's the last time i'll ever talk to you you know what i mean like, <laughs> so i don't know what will befall your fate and so it's a different kind of it's so wild, but I do hope you fare well, and I thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you, David, and stay safe and healthy. That's what I tell folks, and that uh, seems to work well. <laughs> okay, same to you. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes, you also can go to youarenotsosmart.com or iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud and also now Spotify. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. If you would like to follow the show on social media, it is at Facebook at slash youarenotsosmart. Also on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. I am at David McCraney. 
And you can support the show by going to Patreon, where you can pitch in at any amount and get the show ad-free or at higher amounts than that, slightly higher. You can get signed t-shirts, signed books, posters, all sorts of cool stuff. That's patreon.com slash you are not so smart. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. (laughs) 